And just in case you're wondering, why does Pastor Ken have half his shirt tucked in and half of it tucked out? I'm trying to start a new fashion. (laughs) Next week, you'll all be dressed like me. It's a little bit long. My shirt is just a wee bit long. Apparently, I have gorilla arms that are too long, and so I get a shirt. It's a little, so it kind of looked like I was wearing a mini skirt this morning. <laughs> so I thought I'd tuck in the front part, leave the back part down, because then it hides my keister a little bit. You know, it's a little embarrassing these days as you get older. There are things that disappear. So anyway, and then I can actually get my wires to where they need to go as well. So there you go, just in case you were wondering. Now you know. You don't have to wonder through the whole sermon. What's his shirt like now for? I sure hope that over the last week that you were practicing the whole process of the issue of working on your anger. In other words, not being angry. In other words, turning it over to Jesus, because Jesus knows how much we struggle with anger. He knows that, that it is a big issue in our lives, and the only way we effectively deal with our anger issues is to seek His help by submitting our anger into His control and seeking His transformation of our lives. That's the only way we can deal with anger. So I hope, anger, I hope, I hope you were doing that. This week, we're going to sit at Jesus' feet, and we're going to learn from Him, and we're going to be looking at, a, at the passage this morning, and just by the nature of the subject itself, it'll be difficult and um, most likely make most of us uncomfortable. And if you are fairly new to Wind River Community Church, and you're wondering, do, we all, do you guys always tackle these tricky, difficult subjects? If Jesus talked about it, we talk about it. We don't skip just because it's hard. We don't skip over it. Just because it's hard, we don't mark it out of our Bibles. We don't didact it. We don't cut it out. We go after it the same way Jesus did. We want to do it with passion as well. And so that's what we're going to be doing. And so this morning, uh, as we're, if we're heading into Matthew 5, if you haven't been reading ahead in Matthew 5, you might be a little bit shocked with what's coming this morning, because what we're going to be doing is we're going to be dealing with one of the most massive topics in our country. We're going to be looking at what Jesus has to say about sex and lust and adultery. And if you haven't noticed my uh, title for my sermon, I didn't know what else to call it. So here it is, Sex in the Sanctuary. Obviously, people were looking ahead and said, not going to church this Sunday. They just did. You know, we had a record number of people in church last week. And they probably looked in their Bible and said, Whew, glad Thanksgiving is coming. We have an excuse to stay home. Turkey hangover. I don't know. But these, this thing that we're talking about this morning, this topic, it's a huge topic in our culture. And these issues, by and large, they're wrecking havoc in regard to our emotional and relational capabilities. And I know that some of you might be going like, I don't know if I want my kids to hear what you're going to say or what the Bible has to say about this. I'm going to tell you, if, if that's what you're thinking, you've got your head in the sand. They've already heard more than what I'm going to talk about this morning at school. They've already seen more than what I'm going to talk about 
on television. You've let more into your home than what you should be. Matter of fact, I was telling the guys in my office this morning that my dad in this, you know, he's been, he's been gone for a number of years. So this was back when my kids were little. He, he was even at that point saying, there are things coming on our television that should make us blush, that should embarrass us. And we watch it and they're commercials and we're letting it into our home and we don't even bat an eyeball about it anymore. So this morning, fasten your seatbelts because we're going to be hitting some, some, some things that are really important for us. And before I get into the Matthew 5 text, I want to talk about how God feels about sex. I think way too often God gets painted in a light that when it comes to sex and sexuality, it isn't biblical or fair. So let me just show you a couple of things. I want to paint a picture of God's view of sex and God's view of what sex is a part of. And then I want to kind of lay out for you culture's view of what it is and how it works. And and I want us to compare and contrast, and I want us to to go and look at what Jesus says on the subject. But we're going to start at Genesis 1, because in Genesis 1, we get this picture of God, God in creation, the triune God in creation, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all working together in creating. And what they're creating is they're creating the earth, they're creating the planet, and animals, and mountains, and seas, and everything else. And then at the apex of creation, God creates a man, and out of a man, he creates a woman. We know him as Adam and Eve. And out of this, God creates this place for this Adam and for Eve to come and live. And then in in chapter 2, God kind of gives some instructions to Adam and Eve as to what their part of their job is, their task is. And here's what it says in Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Now, to be one flesh is, with a, is where a man and woman who are married, they come together with one another, with each other. God designed us to have more than a physical connection. And when we're being intimate with our spouse, it's more than just a physical connection. And I'm going to get more into that in just a little bit. And so I just want to help us to understand where we're coming from and what it all lays out for us. And so now we go back to Genesis 1 and look what God did just after he created Adam and Eve in his own image. You understand that, that Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. You and I were created in the image of God. And after he created Adam and Eve, here's what what he did, here's what the Bible says. And God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Do you see what God just did there? He blessed them. They were naked in the garden. They were unashamed. And the Bible says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Now, I want to make sure we're all on the same page when it comes to being fruitful and multiply. Do we really understand what it means to be fruitful and to multiply? We're not like a chia pet. You just dump water on it and poof, something happens. We're not like that. You see, what happens is is that, that 
God brought us together and he told us to be fruitful and multiplying. And so God's saying, I've created you, I've made you, I've placed you here. Now be fruitful and multiply. multiply." And Adam and Eve did. Now this is a little side note. This is why homosexuality doesn't work. Because they can't be fruitful and multiply. And we'll finish that on another day. But So what we have here is we have God saying this. I'm the one who did this. I'm the one who wired Adam like this. I'm the one who wired Eve like this. If you can think without going to a place you shouldn't go, you should marvel at the physical details that have to be in place for a man and woman to not only have a sexual relationship, but to produce from that sexual relationship new life. In in all of that, God designed it all. You have a God who was intimately involved in the design of the act of sex, and he gave his blessing to it, and he said, it's very good. Now, let me just give you another little freebie, because whenever God says something is good, the enemy is going to come along and say, no, that's not good, that's bad. When God says something is very good, The enemy comes along and says, no, it's not very good. It's very bad. And that's why we have all of this confusion and all of this um, backward thinking about sexuality and sex according to our culture. They've turned it upside down on its head because the enemy says it can't be good and it can't be great. And so we're going to make it really something else. And that's what's happened. Here's something else I would like to point out to you that there have been some people who have read the text historically, and what they've done is they've taken sex and they've made it kind of like this. Yeah, you know, sex, it's just for procreation. And the problem with that is, okay, there's a lot of problems with that, but the predominant problem I have with it is that the Bible teaches otherwise. And let me just show you one place where we can go and, and find out what the Bible really says about sex. And that's Song of Solomon, chapter 7. We're going to pick it up with verse 1. And here's how it starts off. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. Your round thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a round bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Let me stop right there, fellas. We need to contextualize this. If you have a girlfriend or a wife, don't make a Valentine's Day card, including your belly is a round wheat hump with with lilies around it. It's not going to end well for you. So just remember, there are things you need to keep right here. I, I wouldn't be a good pastor if I didn't say this to you. It's not a good thing to say to your girlfriend, your wife, your mother... Your thighs are like round jewels, not going to, just saying. All right, let's move on. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Rabim. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon, which looks towards Damascus. Again, stay away from that one. Your head crowns you like Carmel, and your flowering locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one. 
with all of your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree. Your breasts, I shouldn't do that. Your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb that palm tree and I will lay hold of its fruit. That's pretty hot stuff right there, I'm telling you. And, oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, your, the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. I think we could stop right there, don't you? I mean, that's like, I know some of these guys are going like, hey, baby, let's get out of here. I'm telling you, it's, that you're, uh, it's available to you every day at home in your Bible. Open this, this passage up. Lay it beside your nightstand in your bedroom and just see what God does through his word. It's like, whoop! I'm just telling you, it's a good thing. And, and I want you to know that's what the Bible does. The Bible, you paint, you know, you, we can't paint God into this kind of that, that sex is only for pro- procreation, that, that it should only be used if you want to have a baby. I'm telling you, this is our sacred literature, and this man is looking upon his wife in a way that is biblically right. It's good and just and, and can be described well, if we're looking at it as kind of a type of righteous lust. Remember, righteous lust. That's what God does. That's what God thinks about this. This man's looking at his bride. He's looking at his wife, and he likes what he sees. Sex is not just for procreation, but it's a gift for pleasure. It's created and approved by God within the context of marriage. Did you know that's what God thinks about sex? If you grew up in a Baptist church, you sure didn't think that. God is pro-sex. He is not against it. God is not trying to rob you from any experience. He's not trying to take anything from you in regard to this gift. He's the author of this gift. likes the gift to be celebrated. And there's a hitch in this sex and sexuality that makes us really need to dial into what God is saying and what he has done. Because I don't know if you know that, know this, but there is a dangerous component to this physical exchange between a man and a woman. Let me go back to Genesis 2, chapter, chapter 2, and, and remind you that it said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now look right at me because it's really important. You need to hear this. Because what I'm about to say flies in the face of and goes contrary to our current understanding of what sex is, what our culture says it is. The Bible just says that sex goes beyond the physical act. It is involved with a physical act, but it goes way beyond the physical act. Because the Bible just happens to say that, that the two people become one. And what happens is physical, but the Bible is telling us what happens is also way more than just physical. The Hebrew word for marital connective sex is dod, D-O-D, dod. It literally translates a mingling of the souls. Sex is not just a physical act, but a spiritual, emotional, and mental act. To treat it like it's mere physical act is to put your mind, soul, 
and heart at risk. Let me show you another text that we'll read it in negative, but I want us to look at it also from the positive, and it comes from 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your bodies are a member, members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Nor do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. For it is written, the two will become one flesh. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So here's what we have from that, is that all the other sins that we could actually uh, be engaged in and walk in, there's only one sin that is a sin against our bodies, that wounds our body, that cuts us deep in the soul, in the emotions, in the heart, in the mind. And it's the sin of sexual immorality. And I want us to look at it in two ways. I want us to look at it in this positive light. And the positive way I want you to look at it is that God's plan for sex is far greater than the world's definition of what sex is. The definition that the world has for sex is that it's just a physical act. What God has in mind, though, is that the physical act of sex is that within a covenant relationship, a fiercely committed, not I'm feeling things about you, but I'm fiercely committed to you. Feeling or no feeling, I'm in. I'm not going anywhere. I'm with you. Within the confines of a deep and abiding friendship with one another in mutual submission to God Almighty, the man and the woman come together spiritually, emotionally, physically. And when that happens, satisfaction in the physical act actually occurs. But when we look at this text and see you're just treating uh, sex as a physical act, you're actually doing things to your soul you're completely unaware of. You may, maybe you can feel deep down that something's wrong, but you don't quite know what it is. And you can see there's damage going on to ourselves when we step outside of the bounds of what God has given us as a good, right gift to be celebrated as he created it to be celebrated. Now, the idea that sex is more than physical will be argued predominantly by culture. And as your pastor, here's what I can tell you. If there is any evidence that the current modern view of sexuality was creating more respect between genders, was creating safe environments for children to be raised, loved, and cared for, was bringing about fullness of heart, was eradicating loneliness, if it was doing all of that, then I think we would have to take a step back and wonder whether or not the Bible is speaking the truth to us in the reality or whether it's some kind of outdated book that doesn't get how enlightened we really are. But in reality, all data, secular 
and Christian is pointing to the reality that our view of sexuality is not eradicating loneliness. It is not creating environments that sustain mutual respect among genders. It's not creating environments where children are healthily sustained and raised and encouraged and edified. It's not doing the things it's promised to do. Mutual consent is the new respect for sex in our culture, and it's a failure. Do you get that? That you, what, the, what the culture is telling us now is that if you want to be sexually involved with someone else or multiple someone else's, you just need to have mutual consent with them. And then it's okay to do whatever you want. And yet God says, that's not okay. And the problem with that is that it creates this false illusion of what's really good and right and fulfilling. A man or a woman who endlessly switches partners looking for that mythical experience going, that's going to satisfy all the longings of their heart has severed the flower from the plant and will never see life, growth, or fruit. God's plan for sex is a relationship between a man and a woman where there's a covenant connection with one another. And here's what that looks like. Here's what a covenant connection sounds like. I'm not going anywhere. I love you. I love not just your body. I love your soul. I love your mind. I love who you are. In fact, I'm so committed to you that if sex is way down on the list of things we enjoy with one another because of either some baggage in my life or some baggage in your life, I am still fiercely committed to you. I'm still dialed into you. That's what a covenant sounds like. And God takes covenants really serious. Matter of fact, he created the covenant. God's the author of covenant. He made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He made a covenant with David. He made a covenant with all of Israel. He made a covenant with us, a new covenant, through Jesus Christ. And he holds that covenant at highest standards. And so when we step into this relationship of marriage, we call it wedding vows, but what it really is, it's a marriage covenant where we are fiercely committed to the person that we're stepping into. And when you're that fiercely committed, you have set yourself into this environment that creates these deep, deep waters that you grow in and you will never find the bottom of it because your relationship continues to just expand all the time. But the problem is, is there are a lot of people who have, have, have changed that and they've, they've gone the other way and they've got what they're doing is now diving off of a high dive diving board into two inches of water. And it's just, it just kills them and they don't get why. And so God has set for us his plan for what sex is. And so I want us to look at what Jesus teaches regard sex, regarding sex, lust, and how to handle ourselves. So now we're going to go to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to pick it up in verse 27. You have heard that it, it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with what? 
lustful intent has already committed adultery in her heart. So I want to stop right here, and I want us to chat about what it means to look at a woman, to look on the opposite sex with lustful intent. And although this passage seems to be primarily addressing men, it's also speaking about women because we know that it cuts both ways. It might look different, but it still cuts both ways. So lustful intent is to look upon a person sexually or emotionally in a way that desires what is not covenanted to you. Are you with me? What it means to look upon a woman or a man with lustful intent, to look upon them with, with the, that you want from them something that you are not covenanted to get from them. To take what is not yours is a better way to say it. When I was a youth pastor, one of the things you have to deal with with the youth as We fell in love. And so I would always take the guys out and I would always ask them a couple of questions as they would, we would sit down and we would talk about this relationship. And one of the things that I would always point out to them, I would say, is this the girl that you're going to spend the rest of your life with? Well, no, that would be stupid. <laughs> okay, so you're not going to marry her. No, I don't think so. You don't want to take her home. Well, my parents matter. They're not really that crazy about her. But, uh, you know, we just need to be boyfriend and girlfriend. And I'm going like, okay. So what I want you to understand is that now you're dating somebody else's wife. That girl that you're dating is somebody else's wife. Because you're not in a covenant. You're not going to make a covenant relationship with her. And so now it's somebody else's wife that she's going to be in covenant to. They're like, oh. And if I still think they're not getting it, I say to them, here's what Jesus wants you to do in this relationship. When you take this girl out on a date, and you will take her out on a date, and you'll go to a movie, and you're going to go for dinner, you're going to go bowling, every time you're with her, I want you to have this picture in your mind. What's that? I want you to be thinking of my wife, Lorinda. What? When you go to take her home and you're going to kiss her goodnight, when you're in the car and you're thinking you want to make out with her and you look at her, I want you to think, this is just like Pastor Ken's wife, Lorinda. I have more boys coming to me going like, yeah, I broke up with my girlfriend. Every time I look at her, I see your wife and I just go like, I can't do this. I can't kiss her. That's like kissing Miss Lorinda. You see, that's the problem with with what we've got going on in our society today is we've got this whole issue where we think that it's okay. We think that, that we can look sexually or emotionally at somebody with desires, but we're not in a covenant with them, and so we're taking what is not ours to have, even in our thought life. And the predominant way lustful intent plays its way out in our culture is through pornography and fantasy. We are a culture captivated with pornography and fantasy. And I cannot in history find a more corrosive, destructive thing for relational capacity than pornography and fantasy. 
And so let me just run through some of it, why it is that way. And the first reason why pornography or fantasy is, well, let me just, let me define that maybe for you. Because you might be thinking, well, you know, what are you talking about when you say pornography? Are you talking about hardcore or softcore? Are you, you know, because there's stuff we can call art. And and if, if that's a discussion you're having in your mind, you're in trouble already. You're in deep trouble, and I'm fearful for you. Because it's, it's, here's what it is. When you, when you think of, of um, movie clips or you look at images, if you're looking at a catalog that came in the mail, this is like Fifty Shades of Grey or romance novels. It, this is anything where you begin to create in your mind an alternate reality rather than one you're walking in with sexually lustful or an emotionally lustful attitude towards what is not yours. So the first thing I want to point out to us is that pornography and fantasy are devastating because they dehumanize their object. When God gave us the gift of sex, he wrapped in that our souls. My wife has a soul. She's a person. She's not just her body. In fact, the Bible tells us that when the body ceases to exist, it goes in the ground and goes back to dust. And my wife, Lorinda, she's not just physical body. Your spouse is not just a physical body. Their souls, their emotions, their mental health, they have a heart, they have desires. To simply want from them a physical act is to dehumanize them and to use them as good for your own end with no real care for their emotional, spiritual, mental state. It dehumanizes them. I don't know if you know this or not, but this is a a statistic you need to be aware of. Pornography, year in and year out, takes in more money than baseball, basketball, and football franchises, professional sports put together bring in. you get that? We in the United States and around the world, we spend more money on pornography than these major sporting teams can, can generate in revenue. And so if you think that we don't have a problem in our culture, it's a pervasive culture to our culture, to our communities. It is eating us alive Have you ever thought what happened to those men, to those women, to get them to that moment? What type of desperation they had to step into? And I don't care what kind of a smile is on their face. And I don't care what you've had to tell yourself and lie to yourself, deceive yourself into believing that it's okay. It's not. It's dark. It's dehumanizing. It's taking advantage of wounds and hurts and loss and issues and words. We're eating it up as though there's no real loss, no real hurt, no real pain involved in this. It's awful. And pornography and fantasizing, it dehumanizes people. And every time somebody spends money in in pornography or in this area, all they're doing is they're perpetuating the, the syndrome of having more people involved in that industry and in getting them enslaved to it. Number two, it rewires the brain. William Struthers is a 
biopsychologist. And he's rolled out a ton of information on what they're learning about the effects of pornography on the human brain. And, and I'm talking about we're at a, at a different scale now than what it's ever been in modern war, in, in the history of the world. We are at a phenomenon now. And, and I, it, it, this is so bad what's happening is that this new thing is messing us up. It's jacking up our brains. Here's what William found out. He found out that as either a man or a woman views pornography, they're creating in their brain little neural pathways. If you know anything about Pavlov's dog, ring the bell, slobbers, it's that kind of a thing. If you desire the rush of sexual experience, if you desire the release from sexual experience, and you train yourself that way, that works is that train yourself that it works that way. It only works that way through pornography. And then your brain picks up on that. And now the only way for you to get what you want now is through pornography. You begin to objectify women. Women and men cease to become emotional, spiritual humans, but rather become the means to your end. In some cases, the brain gets so rewired that you would rather just have pornography than a real person. I will tell you this, that a number of years ago, I counseled with a husband and wife, and they were mutually viewing pornography together before they would have sex, before they would try for intimacy. And the, and the problem is, is that you get to a point that you have to view explicit material before you can get intimate with your spouse, and sometimes people don't even want to do that. And how do you think that makes the spouse feel? How is that sowing into the soul of your wife, into the soul of your husband? Do you see the emotional, relational breakdown that begins to take place? It rewires our brains. Number three, it robs of the ability to enjoy the connection of souls that could occur when people grow together as a whole. When you're growing together spiritually, growing together emotionally, growing together intellectually, growing together physically, you have what God designed and created, and he said it is very good. If you take the physical component out, and that's all you start to focus on is the physical component, and you go somewhere else with it, then all of a sudden, you're not able to connect emotionally. You're not able to connect intellectually. You're not able to connect in regard to the soul. And now the whole house of cards comes crashing down on itself. It's corrosive to our ability to feel love, to receive love, enjoy love, to feel legitimate, healthy connection with other human beings. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about right now. Some of you are in a marriage where there's distance and you're not sure what it is. And for some of you, the reason is for pornography and fantasy. It may not always be that, but that's what it often can be. And let me get something really straight, lest the men feel like they're being picked on today. Because pornography and fantasy is not just a male issue anymore. It's not. In fact, a lot of statistical information is showing us that the fastest growing users of pornography now are women. 
57% of the men in church are viewing pornography on a regular basis. Over 35% of the women in church are viewing pornography on a regular basis. It's an epidemic. It's an issue that we have to deal with. And we've got this stuff going on. And it's getting out of control. And the thing that we're doing is we're tapping out on what our hearts really crave, which is connecting with another human being. When that's all we want to do is look at those things, those people out there. So now we're going to look at what Jesus says next. This corrosive issue on the lives of men and women in regard to emotional connectivity, relational connectivity. Since what God wants most from you is the fullness of your heart, the gladness of your heart. He wants your love to be expressed to him. He he wants it to be evident to other people. But let me make you clear about this. He is more interested in your love and obedience to him than he is in your happiness and your pleasure. He wants holiness out of you. And so this is such a huge issue. And even though God created sex for us to enjoy as a husband and wife, he gave us this gift of sex. There are things that are happening that Jesus is saying, we have got to get a handle on on the lust issue of our life. And so we're going to look at what Jesus says next. And it starts with verse 29. And it says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, before anybody goes out this week and rips out their eye and throws it on the ground and comes back with a a patch over their eye looking like a pirate, let me finish reading this so we can talk about it. it. It goes on to say, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. Again, let me chat with you about this here because I think... This is a bit of a hyperbole. I don't think that the next week you should come back with a patch and a hook. That's not Jesus' point. Don't do it. We don't, need, we don't need to be Wind River Community Pirate Church. Okay? But I want you to hear what Jesus is saying. I want you to, as though these were the words of Jesus himself, this is what he's saying. This is such a serious issue for your soul. This is so dangerous for your soul that you better be serious about what I just said. I'm so serious about how corrosive lust will be to your joy, to your ability to connect with one another, for your ability to feel intimacy at the level I created you to feel intimacy at, that you'd better be serious about that, about the life of your mind, about the intent of your eyes, about where you glance, about what you think, about where you dwell, about where you let your mind and your heart go. I'm serious. These two last verses that we just read, these are, you will not find any two verses that call for a more serious action plan than those. Now, I got to tell you about they're called the, the bruised and bleeding rabbis. Has anybody ever heard of them before? Bruised and bleeding rabbis. They were a group of, of guys in the Old Testament times, New Testament times, that they took this whole thing seriously, that they wouldn't look at another woman. I mean, they wouldn't look at another woman. So when they're walking down the street and there's a woman coming, they would either 
close their eyes and walk blindly or they would look so that they wouldn't have to look at them. And so they were always falling off the curb and bashing their heads and cutting themselves. They were running into walls and stuff because they were trying to take this thing so literally that they wouldn't look at somebody with lust in their intent in their heart that they were the bruised and bleeding rabbis. And it was ridiculous. So we have to... We have to come at this thing, uh, this whole thing with lust because it's a powerful enemy and we have to get ahead of it. We have to go straight on at it because we have explicit material coming at us all the time. I mean, the Victoria's Secret angel thing with my bobber. Can we not just get over that already? I mean, really, who cares? And so we need to have a two-pronged approach to assault this thing of lust. And so the first one is the greatest weapon you have in your battle against the lustful intent is a vibrant, growing, passionate relationship with Jesus Christ. You want to know why a lot of people just struggle with it? Why a lot of people can't get over it? It's because they love that more than they love Jesus. And, And that's the best weapon you're ever going to have. Our head on assault on lustful intent is a vibrant, growing relationship with Jesus. And again, maybe you're a guest here and you don't know this, but being a Christ follower is not a list of do's and don'ts. It's a living relationship with God through Jesus, his son. It's a vibrant, growing relationship as we've been reconciled to God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And and here's the honest truth. If you don't ever step into that relationship with Jesus, if you've never committed yourself to that vibrant, growing, passionate relationship with Jesus, you're always going to have lustful intent. The only way we're ever going to get over this is that we start to love Jesus and love God more than what we love the lust of our flesh. And the only way that that happens is when we start to see our sisters and brothers not as objects, but we begin to see them as who they really are, children of God, and that only happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need, we need to ask this Holy Spirit to absolutely make us disgusted with the object, object of making them an object of our lives, dehumanizing them in our lives, making women and men the object of our dehumanizing of them. When that happens, it's what the Holy Spirit does. He turns that stuff up inside of us so we're sick to our stomachs about it. That's the first prong assault on lustful intent. Number two is wisdom. In the first thing we talk about here, we want to be studying the Word of God. Not to know the Word of God, but to know the God of the Word. We want to be prayerful. We want to be walking in community. We want there to be confession and repentance as marks of our lives. We want to walk in wisdom. And I just think you should have something. We should all have something on our mobile devices that help us. You know, you might not be struggling with this, and I'm not saying that everybody is, but there is always the, the temptation right before us 
And it's foolish of us not to have something to either filter it out of our phone or our browser. And, and it's specifically, we need it on our mobile devices. Because mobile devices go to bed with people. Our kids are taking mobile devices to bed with them at night. I need it. It's an alarm. Right. One of the things I've learned as I've studied about this issue is the real reason you have a pornography fantasy issue as opposed to actually having an intimate relationship with your spouse is that you're just lazy. Loving, serving, going after the heart, soul, and mind of a spouse is far more difficult than just clicking a button. But what God has called us to is to lay down our lives for our spouses, for that one we're in covenant relationship with. It's, I'm telling you right now, I've been married for 35 years. And it's all marital bliss. You have to work at it. It doesn't come easy. It's, 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 it's not natural. And that's why God said a man should leave his mother and father and the wife and they should cling. It's the leave and cleave principle. If you're not left your mom and dad behind, well, it's about time you cut the apron strings and grow up and cleave to each other and, and develop this intimate, loving Spirit-filled relationship that God's called you to. And then it's hard work. It's difficult work. It's not easy. But I'm going to tell you right now, it is the most satisfying thing that you will ever step into on this planet short of heaven. So here, you know, we're coming down to the end of this thing. And so I, I want to leave you with a little bit of help. Because one of the things that I've often said is a great gift that God has given to us as a church is confession and repentance. Confession and repentance. Because you will never find freedom until you start to confess that. And so we're going we're gonna to call for you to, to come forward. And I've got some people who are going to be up here and, and they're going to pray with you. If you need prayer, they will be here to pray with you. They're here to for you to confess to. And some of you are going, like, are you kidding me? I'm sitting right next to my spouse. I, I'm not coming up there. They're going to know. Well, I'm going to tell you something. They need to know. And so what do you want? Do you want to, to continue on living in this dishonest life that you've got where you're not fulfilling your covenant to your wife, where you're gonna, you, you might have uh, to trade out a week or two or a month or two where your wife or your husband is furious with you? Wouldn't you rather trade that so that you can go deeper and more intimate for the first time and finally be honest with your spouse? For those of you who may be here today, receive the news that your spouse is viewing stuff, thinking stuff, fantasizing on stuff. Can you show the grace and mercy of Jesus? Extend that to your spouse? Can you extend to them the grace that Jesus has extended to you? And I'm going to tell you, we want to help you out because we're, we know that this is a big issue. We have in this church um, a ministry that deals with this very specific thing. And it's called the 
Pure Desire Ministry. And there's two parts to it. You have the Conquer Series, and you have the Seven Pillars, and it's led by Jamie Simonson. And Jamie would be more than willing to help you start getting in the right direction and moving in that. And my hope for you is that relationally, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, and physically speaking, you might enjoy God all has for you in Christ Jesus. And I don't want you to think that you've blown it and there's no return and that you've made a mess of things and there's no hope because that's not true because that's what the cross of the Christ has done and it's paid the price on all of that sin, past, present, and future. And if you confess it and you lay it down at the feet of Jesus and accept the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and it takes root in your life, you'll have a new life that you've never experienced before. So I'm just saying, we're going to pray here in just a second. But I want to give you an opportunity. If you want prayer, people are going to come up. They're going to come up. And if you want to confess, repent, and pray, they're going to be here to help you. They're going to be here to work with you. Because God wants you to know the freedom in this area. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you that you're here, that when we need us, you help us. And I know there are some here today who are just so weighed down and beaten down and so much of their life and vitality of their life seems to just dry up and they've got nothing left. And it feels impossible that they can change anything. So, Father, we ask that you would bring the realization that nothing is impossible with you. With man, there are things that are so impossible. But with you, nothing is impossible. Holy Spirit, We pray that you'd move in power among us. I pray that you would quickly move and confess and be honest, that you would bring those people who are ashamed to deal with it, that they wouldn't live in their shame, that they wouldn't live in condemnation, but they would know what it means to to walk through the conviction of the Holy Spirit and that they would confess and repent. We thank you that you are good and right and that you've given us this great gift of sex within marriage and intimacy with one another. So we pray you protect our hearts, protect our, our minds, protect our brains, heal our hearts. It's through your beautiful name in Jesus I pray. Amen.